Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, recriminations over the violence between Israeli forces and Palestinian militants. But are both sides committing war crimes? This assault has forced Israel to defend and protect its citizens. It is further emboldened to continue murdering entire families in their sleep. Big questions about Britain's future role on the world stage from a former national security advisor. Are we going to continue to pretend that we are really still a great power that can influence the course of world events? Or are we going to settle down to being an effective international player? And how do you put a cash value on the army's contribution to the UK? There's a great story that lies um, beneath what the army's contribution is to the fabric of society. There's nothing new about clashes between Israeli forces and Palestinian militants, but the scale of the latest fighting has made headlines around the world. The militant group Hamas has fired thousands of rockets at Israel, which in turn has bombarded Gaza. In almost two weeks of clashes, well over 200 people have been killed. The overwhelming majority of those victims have been in Gaza, including dozens of children. At the United Nations, Israeli ambassador Gilad Erdan defended his country's actions. This assault has forced Israel to defend and protect its citizens and strike Hamas's terror machine in order to stop their aggression once and for all. In Washington, President Biden has defended Israel's right to defend itself. But Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki claims that only makes the situation worse. Each time Israel hears a foreign leader speak of its right to defend itself, it is further emboldened to continue murdering entire families in their sleep. It's reported Mr Biden has privately put Israel's leaders under pressure to find a way to end the fighting. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken. I believe Israel as a democracy has an extra burden to do everything possible to avoid civilian casualties even as it defends itself and its people. There are rules that are meant to govern the conduct of such battles, what we refer to as the laws of war. Chief among them, the need to avoid civilian casualties. But if, as seems the case here, both sides are breaking those laws, will anyone ever be held to account? Well, we can speak to Dapo Kande, Professor of Public International Law at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Uh, Professor Kande, let's start with those laws. What do they say about civilian casualties? All armed forces have an obligation to distinguish between civilian targets and military targets and they have an obligation not to um, direct their attacks against civilian targets whether individuals or objects that's the first thing the second thing that they then say is that even if you are targeting a military objective a legitimate military target there is an obligation to ensure that the civilian casualties are not disproportionate or excessive And then the third thing that they say is they impose an obligation on the sides to take all feasible precautions or to do everything that they can to minimize civilian casualties. And taking all of those things into account, Israel says it's frequently or would say it's frequently given advance warning of attack and that Hamas hides its military assets in civilian areas using people as human shields. Would that legally justify such a high death toll? So Israel, I think, does indeed try to, to meet those obligations of, of doing all that it can in the sense of giving advance warning. That's what it would say, that you know, us giving advance warning 
is part of us doing what we can. So the fact that um, th there are targets in a civilian area does not relieve Israel, though, of its obligations to still minimize civilian casualties. Of course, in a densely populated area like Gaza, it is difficult. But the fact that one side is not meeting its own obligations does not relieve the other side of, of doing all that it can to minimize those civilian casualties. And similarly, just because many Hamas rockets are intercepted, it doesn't mean they aren't intending to cause civilian casualties as well. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, this is probably the area where we have the clearest violation of the law of armed conflict. So firing rockets indiscriminately in a way that cannot distinguish between civilian and military targets is a violation of, of the law of armed conflict. It violates that very first rule of not targeting civilians. And the fact that many civilians don't die because of the ability of Israel to intercept it does not mean that it's not a clear violation. Okay, well also with us today is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, the International Criminal Court has said it's looking into the fighting, suggesting both Hamas and Israel could be guilty of war crimes. Uh, how likely is it that anyone would ever be charged though? Well, over this particular case, very unlikely, but the ICC has the right to consider all of this, to look into it. I mean, the ICC, remember, has been going since 2003, but it's pretty controversial. Um, the, the United States has and Israel have never signed up to the ICC, and there's not much likelihood that they ever would formally. But the United States under President Biden would, would prefer to be at least running in parallel with the ICC uh, if it can. So I don't think we're going to see anybody brought up uh, before the ICC anytime soon uh, as a result of this particular issue. But that doesn't mean to say that the principle that the ICC should consider this is still quite a good principle because it's a very slow process of trying to embed the concept of of the ICC's objectives into the, the body of international law. Professor Akande, as um, Michael says, if uh, countries like the US simply refuse to recognise the ICC and Israel as well, you can understand why some people question the point of even having laws to govern war. I can see that. I mean, so the, the possibility of the ICC exercising jurisdiction in this particular case and actually charging people in this particular case, I agree with Professor Clark that that is slim. But in terms of, you know, why do we even have laws to govern war, the sort of wider question, I think the compliance with law is sort of intimately linked with issues of the moral legitimacy of both sides. The very fact that we're having this conversation, the very fact that um, states and other actors are putting pressure on both sides is an indication that people do take it seriously. Now, of course, unfortunately, it doesn't eliminate all the casualties, nowhere near it. The question is, does it reduce the number of casualties and does it reduce the suffering that occurs in, in war? Yeah, Michael Clark, on that um, point about the recognition of the ICC, why hasn't it been a bigger issue that nations like Israel and the US refuse to engage with it? Well, uh, they've both got their own reasons not to. I mean, Israel will is very, very unlikely to join the ICC because they perceive, I think correctly, that the world always condemns them. Whenever the United Nations has anything to, to consider concerning Israel, everybody piles in to condemn it in ways that they say is just very unfair and doesn't understand it. The United States has always been wary of the ICC example. The US went along, remember, with the, the ad hoc courts that were established over offences in former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. And they thought that was a good idea. But the US has been very wary 
of signing up to the ICC because they feel that because we're the United States, because we get involved in lots of situations, our citizens would be hauled up in front of the ICC in very controversial circumstances. They just don't want to go down that route. And Professor Akande, in terms of the current unrest, isn't it actually politics rather than international law that's going to resolve this? If public opinion forces the US to push Israel towards a ceasefire, a ceasefire is going to happen regardless of the legal position. I think that's right. I I mean, ultimately, these issues are not resolved as a matter of law, whether or not we're going to get some kind of, first of all, ceasefire and whether we're going to get some movement in resolving the wider political issues is very much going to be dependent on uh, political will and political pressure. Professor Dapokanda, good to speak to you today. Professor Michael Clark, please stay with us. Now, the RAF's commander for Middle East operations says he's closely monitoring events in Gaza. Air Commodore Simon Strasden is hoping efforts to halt the fighting will succeed. We continue to monitor uh, the situation in Israel and Palestine. We are absolutely uh, supportive of de-escalatory measures uh, and we hope that we're able to reach some agreement shortly from all parties uh, and that we're able to de-escalate the situation. He's also insisted remaining fighters from the Islamic State group have nowhere to hide as the RAF conducts more strikes in Iraq. Jets based at RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus have been flying missions against IS for the last seven years as part of Operation Shader. Air Commodore Strasden told our reporter Sean Greszczak there's no doubt the militants are on the back foot. I think uh, our Desh uh, in their current guise are definitely in retreat. They're definitely reducing and the threat that they pose to Iraq and to the wider globe and their ability to export terrorism is reducing. Uh, How long that takes uh, and whether we can ever finally kill it off, uh, I think the ideology will will exist and and will morph uh, as we move forward uh, and the threat will continue to uh, exist, but at a much lower level, something that is much more manageable. And our aspiration is that Iraq remains in the lead uh, and that they're able to deal with their own security and stability. Do you think RAF typhoons will still be conducting uh, strikes over Iraq and, and northern Syria in, say, 10 years' time then? I would very much hope that that is not the case, but we know that we've been involved in the Middle East uh, in the current guise since the early 90s. Uh, we know that the ability to export terrorism and extreme ideology remains and that their intent is to continue in that vein. Uh, And so having a presence and the ability to control that and to be able to support uh, the host nations and the Iraqi uh, government is really, really important. Uh, And therefore, I'm reluctant to put a time on on that uh, because we will remain in support of the Iraqi government as long as necessary. Really, the message to Daesh is that there's nowhere to hide. Uh, So whilst you remain uh, on the run and you potentially pose a threat to us, uh, we are watching. We are understanding, we are working closely with the Iraqi government uh, and there is genuinely nowhere to hide. Uh, And so we will not rest until we've rooted you out of even those most remote places where you attempt to hide. That was Air Commodore Simon Strasden. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, he couldn't rule out our potential involvement in strikes against IS in Iraq 10 years from now, which implies if there is success, it's very, very slow and potentially reversible. Yes, I mean, that's always the case in these sorts of operations. Um, I mean, the Islamic State group have, have um, as they've lost ground in the Levant, of course, they've moved into North Africa, in Libya, into the Sahel areas in uh, Mali and Chad and northern Nigeria. They're operating in East Africa. And now, I mean, since 2017, have been pretty active in Mozambique, quite small, but but quite active. So IS keep morphing into something else, as indeed does Al-Qaeda. 
But there's no doubt about it that, that IS regard their core area as the Levant, the area of Syria and Iraq and even Lebanon. So they'll always want to be there. And as uh, Air Commodore Strasdin said, you know, they've got to, as it were, they've got to try to deny them that space for as long as possible. But all of these operations from the West's point of view always end the same way. That is, we declare victory and leave. That's exactly what um, President Bush and President Obama and President Trump have tried to do. Joe Biden is on the same path, although I suspect he's being a bit more honest by saying that the victory that we can declare is more conditional. And I think that's what Air Commodore Strasden was saying. You know, we will we will win a conditional victory, but it will always be a bit unsatisfactory. That's the nature of this sort of warfare. This is Sitrep. Now, as Britain starts to consider life after the worst of the coronavirus pandemic, the government has to figure out how to navigate its way through this post-COVID, post-Brexit world. The integrated review talked up the importance of collective action and confirmed a tilt to the Indo-Pacific region. But is that the right way forward? Lord Peter Ricketts was Britain's first national security advisor and before that UK's permanent representative to NATO. He's written a book about the hard choices facing the UK and told me there are key lessons from the events of the past 12 months. Well, curiously, it has led to both a more nationalist reaction and also a sense that we are all linked together uh, and that the virus knows no borders. So the immediate reaction to this inevitably, I think, was for countries to turn inward, to depend on themselves, to tend to put up barriers. But then uh, we saw through the science that actually international cooperation is the way out of this pandemic. So I hope that the longer term lesson will be, we are an interconnected world, even if trade is a little bit in retreat from the free trade uh, period of the last 20 years, but we do have to work and cooperate effectively together. And if the in the early stages it drove countries apart, what do you think is needed to build real resilience against the next possible pandemic? I think that's a hugely important question because the issue of resilience raises all sorts of issues about the way governments work. Um, finance ministries tend to fund the immediate crisis in front of their eyes. And a crisis that might happen, or might not, might be next year, or might be in five years' time, it's really hard to get um, treasuries to um, open their wallets and put serious money into creating the kind of redundant systems you need to cope with a real crisis. It could be a pandemic. But equally, it could be a climate crisis. It could be some desperate attack on the grid system or the internet. So I think we need to get better at um, spending money on contingencies just in case they happen, because it's a good investment, as this pandemic has shown. Do you think we've actually learned that lesson now? I hope so. I think it's too early to say, because inevitably, at the moment, the world is focusing on um, spending on public health. Um, so we will be better prepared for another pandemic of this kind. And of course, the scientific community have reacted brilliantly. And I hope that that's something durably learned. But now I see the British government is cutting the aid budget quite sharply. So some of the programs on nutrition and clean water, child health and so on, are being reduced. So I'm not sure we've learned the totality of the question yet. No. And you also say that America's confrontation with China is a generational struggle. Uh, does that, what does that actually mean for Britain in terms of its national security? Britain is awkwardly caught between these two mega powers. Of course, our security interests go towards America. Uh, we will always be allies with America when they have security issues with China. But having left the EU, economically, we are very dependent on trade and investment with China, which is the world's largest and most rapidly growing market. 
but also other countries in Asia. So we don't have quite the same interests as the Americans on the economic and commercial side. We have to navigate our own path. But I think the real confrontation we had over Huawei a couple of years ago with the Americans shows how difficult it is to navigate our own route through that uh, confrontation. And do you welcome the Indo-Pacific <clears throat> tilt as a way of positioning ourselves there? I was worried about the pre-publicity for it before this integrated review was announced, because it made it sound like the whole of British foreign policy was gravitating towards the Indo-Pacific, whereas our core security and defence interests are actually in Europe. When I read the document, I was more reassured because it was a more measured, balanced approach, some more involvement in the Indo-Pacific, which is a good idea, but not abandoning European security, which is absolutely crucial to us. So I was satisfied in the end, and it's always a risk with these things, that they get exaggerated in the advance um, build-up to them, uh, which I think was a bit the case uh, with this integrated review. And do you welcome the prospect of HMS Queen Elizabeth, the aircraft carrier, going there? I think it's a good use of this extraordinary new asset that we have. But again, let's not exaggerate the significance of it. Britain is never going to be at the forefront of Asian security issues. We'll always be a secondary player. I'm sure our Asian allies will welcome the reassurance of the Royal Navy being back with its wonderful aircraft carrier. But we have to be in partnership with other countries in the region. We mustn't overclaim British influence in that vast Indo-Pacific region. What do you think is the biggest challenge to the UK's national security over the coming years? I think part of it is what we were talking about, resilience. It's about planning for crises and disruptive events that we can't yet see clearly today, um, but which may hit us. Climate, I think, is the, is the most important of those. Beyond that, I think we do have to adapt to a world where we are not a member of any of the major economic blocs, where the really powerful economic players and all of them will be setting standards and norms that we are going to have to match up to. And Britain is going to have to be a very agile country with clear, uh, innovative ideas to bring to help solve the world's problems in order to get our voice heard. Your book is called Hard Choices, What Britain Does Next. Can you just sum up what are the hard choices or what Britain should do next? I think Britain is facing a key moment now after leaving the EU where it needs to work out a new national strategy for the next decades. And there are a number of themes there. One is what kind of a role do we see ourselves playing internationally? Are we going to continue to pretend that we are really still a great power that can influence the course of world events? Or are we going to settle down to being an effective international player, uh, working with other countries to deliver our objectives? Where do we stand on China? We need to work commercially with them while recognizing the security threat. Um, our trade policy is going to involve lots of difficult choices with blocks and major economies that are more powerful than us. And finally, we need to work out a relationship with the EU, which is mature, which is productive, which gets away from the scratchy, difficult economic uh, arguments we're having at the moment. Britain is a European power. We need to have a functioning relationship with the European Union. That was Lord Ricketts and his book Hard Choices, What Britain Does Next is out now. Few people would doubt the value of the army to the UK, both in terms of protecting the nation and supporting it during crises like the pandemic. 
But what's the financial value of the army's role in British life? It's a question that's never really been answered until now. A new report estimates the army's total economic footprint at £15 billion. Researchers say the army supports well over a quarter of a million jobs. Brigadier John Clark is the army's head of strategy. When I spoke to him earlier, I began by asking him why they wanted to put a cash figure on the army's value. There's a great story that lies um, beneath what the army's contribution is to the fabric of society, actually not just from a financial perspective, but across sort of society values uh, and other things. And we were very keen to have a, um, a more detailed and refined representation of the value that the British Army brings to the UK as a whole. So it's about the value across the board. One issue the report highlights, though, is that it's hard to work out a precise economic value because a lot of the Army's work deters or prevents threats that themselves would have a huge economic impact. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem of the counterfactual, how much of the investment that the Army's made led to things not happening. But what what the report makes very clear is that investment uh, in defence and in the Army specifically has a huge impact, uh, material impact on the prosperity, the security and the influence of the United Kingdom. And did the research turn up any surprises? I mean, in terms of sort of defence exports, in terms of the value of, of the army and its programmes to British industry and so forth, a lot of that we knew and, and could, could put a value on. What's, what's very interesting is some of the sort of the social um, aspects of it, and as I say, the contribution of the army to the fabric of society. For example, um, the British Army um, has approximately the same aspect in terms of cultural heritage as the National Trust, a similar footprint in terms of property and land. And that was a very interesting thing to discover. And who's your intended audience for this information? Is it politicians who hold the purse strings or the public? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, of course, when politicians want to work out whether the money they're spending is value for money, then then this sort of information is very helpful. Uh, you know, as I always say, nobody wants to pay more for their insurance policy than, than they have to. But it's clear that when you invest in your insurance policy, if you understand that you get other dividends um, back from it, in addition to, you know, how it helps you out in times of trouble, then that's a really important thing to understand. But I think there's also a really important message to the army itself and to all of those of us who wear uniform and serve. You know, it's not just about how we defend the country abroad and protect people at home. And, you know, you have to look at the re- response to the recent COVID um, pandemic and all that the army continues to do in response to that, to understand that the army really does play a very vital role in defence of, of, of our people and our way of life. But But it's the really interesting sort of financial data that Oxford Economics have brought towards us that really goes beyond that which we've been able to put a wet finger in the air and and assert before. And there's a lot of talk about the army's role in promoting prosperity and projecting influence as the physical size of the army actually shrinks. Is that kind of soft power going to take on a greater significance, do you think? Well, I think so. I mean, in 2019, as the report highlights, we had 61,000 soldiers deployed in, I think, 128 countries around the world, which is really significant. And some of that is about deterring uh, would-be adversaries. Some of it's about reassuring allies and partners. And it was a really important part 
of uh, the Army's uh, announcements through the integrated review that we're going to get much more into what I would call prevention rather than cure. So it's much more about getting out there, working with partners um, and allies to, uh, to improve capacity, to learn ourselves actually about what's happening out in the world and improve our own capabilities, but also to deter um, those who would um, seek to harm our interests and our people. How well understood do you think the true value of the army is in the UK? Whenever there's a war um, abroad, for example, or a fight against pandemic or natural disaster here in the UK, or, you know, look at the support that the defence and the army within it did to the Olympic Games in 2012. At moments of crisis, the army is always very popular. But what I think this report does really effectively is highlight that, you know, aside from crises, actually the, the material contribution that the British army makes to society, to the promotion of our interests, to the development of our prosperity and to the protection of our people is really significant. And so, you know, of course, none of us is ever as popular as we'd like to be. But the reality is this report, this report gives us some really clear and firm data that will, enable, that will assist our, our arguments um, as we look to, you know, increasingly convince people of the value of the army, uh, most um, importantly, to encourage people to join. That was Brigadier John Clark there. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Um, Michael, at the end there, he seems to concede there's a job to do to convince some people of the army's wider value to society. Yes, indeed. The truth is we've got a very sentimentalised view of the army in general. And so, you know, when people disapprove of a war, as they did say in parts of some of them in 2003, then the army are the thugs of government. And then when things started to go badly in Afghanistan, the army are the victims of government. They don't want to be seen in either of those roles. And I think what Brigadier Clark was saying there, really, the army is the instrument of government um, and it should be seen for what it is. We need, a, as it were, a, to get beyond this sentimentalization of the army in, uh, in UK society. And I think that's really very important. And so what he's trying to do is put some figures on all of this to say, look, we know that the army is basically popular with the British public most of the time. But just remember that the army's doing a job 365 days a year, you know, a job that you don't see a lot of the time. What kind of impact do you think this kind of report can have? I think it will help the army's supporters in Parliament, because one of the problems is whenever we talk about defence cuts, the army is almost always in the crosshairs for defence cuts, because all the big ticket items, the Navy and the Air Force equipment, these big items, the new aircraft, the aircraft carriers, ships or whatever, they're very difficult to cut because they cost so much. But you can always reduce the army down by reducing troop numbers, fewer tanks, fewer armoured vehicles and so on. And so the army always gets the wrong end of defence cuts. And if they can argue that, look, we're talking now about persistent engagement, the integrated review was all about using our armed forces all of the time. I think this sort of report gives ammunition to people like me as well, who want to support the work that the armed forces do all the time when you don't really see it. And I think it's it's a pretty valuable report for that reason. And finally today, we look back 30 years to the aftermath of the 1991 Gulf War. Kurdish refugees fled Saddam Hussein's rule, hiding in the mountains of northern Iraq and Turkey. It triggered a multinational effort to help them. Operation Haven. Major General Andy Salmon of 4-5 Commando served three tours in Iraq, but says this was his proudest moment. We were part of a coalition 20,000 people, 10 nations that went in to do a job and we ended up contributing to the salvation of the Iraqi Kurds and 
literally saved hundreds of thousands of lives. When you are amongst that in refugee camps and you see children starving and dying and you've been able to do something about that, the purpose, why we exist, to save people's lives, to make the world a better place, to bring order out of chaos, it couldn't have been more apposite. It couldn't have been more fundamental and profound, that operation. So when I look back at Haven, it was the most satisfying thing I've ever, ever done in my life, never mind my career. All of a sudden, a lorry load of Iranian refugees were just sort of dumped uh, on the road by, uh, you know, where we were having a conversation. And we decided that we were going to put them by a derelict hut and, uh, you know, to make camp and, you know, dig some latrines. And we walked to where this uh, derelict hut had been. And he said, you know, the family that were dumped? Well, you know, we're going to meet them again. And uh, the patriarch of the family came out and, um, you know, smiling, very grateful, and ushered us in. And, and in this, this old derelict hut, you know, it was immaculate, it was clean, there were rugs on the floor, there was a feast laid out on a table in the middle of it, despite the fact that they had nothing. They'd managed to pull some things together and make some food. Um, the daughters were dressed in very colourful, um, you know, garments and, you know, looking radiant. So despite the fact that they absolutely had nothing, they were willing to give us everything. When the Kurds look back at Operation Haven, they view it as one of the seminal moments in their long history, over 2,000 years as a, as a nation. And um, if that operation hadn't taken place, they feel that they would have died out in the mountains, um, the only friends that they have. Um, so it's viewed with incredible fondness and gratitude by the Kurds in Iraq. That was Major General Andy Salmon on the events of Operation Haven 30 years ago. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. In a brand new, original BFBS podcast. I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq, like beyond angry and tears rolling down my eyes. What is it that drives people to be brave? We knew that he didn't have that long to live, so we had to continue. To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I guarantee you that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. Hear from the men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. They talk about what happened, what they went through at the time, and how they feel about it now. TN Meadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.